0: Hi, welcome back. How you doing, Margaret? I'm good. <laughs> hey, thanks for joining me today. I'm here with Margaret. Oh, gosh. I, Margaret, Bjarne daughter. How'd I do? How'd I do, Margaret? I'm improving.
1: That, that was actually pretty good. You just have to go for I, it. <laughs> all
0: right. I had to jump in. Well, Margaret is someone that I've become a quick fan of. Uh, we did a podcast, which I encourage you to listen to and went into it uh, some of our history and our motivations and our thoughts in the future around pay equity and. Algorithmic bias. And we're actually going to talk about those themes today. And I actually want to highlight an article that she co authored that was featured in HBR uh, back in January. And we are going to cover some of these themes. So if you haven't given it a read or seen it, uh, I encourage you to do that. Uh, with that staging, Margaret, if you would introduce yourself and how you got inspired to get into this work.
1: Yeah, sure. Thank you. And first of all, thank you so much for having me. Um appreciate the opportunity to talk about these things. So yeah, so I'm Margaret Birndotir, Um, and I'm an associate professor of management science and statistics at University of Maryland, where I'm a part of the business school. So Robert H. Smith School of Business. Um, and my research has always been kind of on the intersection of machine learning and optimization. So think about data informed decision making. So that's where, you know, my research interests lie. And this all, this adventure, I'm just going to call this my adventure <laughs> into people analytics really started as a research problem. So um I had a COO that was complaining. They had an 8% pay gap. They had been trying to close it for over a year by being very mindful in all of their decision-making, but when they found, when they measured the pay gap again, it was still 8%. So then it became very clear to them that you don't fix these problems with good intentions alo- alone. You need good quantitative tools. So, and to me, that sounded like an awesome research problem, right? Because you have all the data on all the employees and you need to determine, you know, which actions should we take to close these pay gaps. Um, So for me, it was like a mathematical modeling exercise that now has lasted eight years or so. So that's how this got started. Yeah.
0: Well, let's jump right in it because. You know, pay equity in particular has been a goal. It's been talked about for you know, a generation, if not longer. You know, when uh, Barack Obama took office, his first you know, bill that he signed with the Lilly Ledbetter Act, it was effectively pay equity. And, you know, here we are. It's still pervasive that, you know, particularly gender pay equity hasn't moved to a large degree when we look at society and even in organizations. So why do you think that is and as important as anything what can be done to start remedying this very real problem?
1: Yeah, I mean a large part of the problem I mean I think two things right? So if we talk about why did nothing happen? I think one uh the legislation didn't have any bite. So when you mm-hmm. think about both the legislation over in Europe as well as here you know, the equal pay for equal work, it simply did not work because you can limit yourself to such a small group of people. Everybody's unique, right? Yeah. Unique. you are all unique human humans and we do unique work, right? So uh, it didn't have much spite. So that was one part, like there wasn't a stick. And then I think another thing, and that is fast changing, which is, you know, driving change. And then there's a cultural shift. I think over the past five years or so, I mean, it's just no longer acceptable that somebody is being paid less because of the color of their skin or their gender or their orientation, etc. So that thinking has shifted and what the legislations and regulations are helping, especially um, certain states in the U.S. and over in Europe, is that they are enforcing forcing companies to take a look at their data. So oftentimes mm-hmm. these legislations, they don't have a fine mechanism. So for example, in my home country, Iceland, The legislation is just you need to do an analysis, period. It doesn't say anything about that you have to have a 0% pay gap. It doesn't say anything about, oh, you know, you have to get below this threshold in a certain period of time, but it forces you to take a look at your data. And once you take a look at your data, the conversation really shifts because it's no longer hypothetical, right? We all have good intentions, right? So why would I think that my compensation decisions have been biased because I've been putting my best intentions uh, towards them. Right. But now, if I look at my data and whoops, there's a 7% pay gap, well, it changes the conversation a little bit. So, just that fact that companies are actually looking at their data, it changes the conversation from this hypo- hypothetical, I think everything is fine, into, okay, now what do we do to eradicate the problem and move forward?
0: Well, let's talk about that because when, uh, say, going back, say, eight to 10 years ago, um, where this started to elevate not only in terms of priority, but the quality of the data that was being produced to highlight the problem. Yep. And here we are, say, eight to 10 years hence. And in many cases, it hasn't moved. So there's a bunch of stuff between you know, the current state and the future state when we go back in time. And changes were attempted, yet a lot of this inequity has perpetuated and of course the decisions that are being made from you know whether asking previous you know compensation you know before you're hired obviously promotion opportunities um elevated um, you know increases in salary bonuses and the like you know there's a lot of decisions inherent in there which generate you know data so going back to the question you know why hasn't it moved and why you know what from a process perspective, as well as an analytical perspective needs to be done to make sure that we actually I- improve the needle. Thoughts?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think kind of to my previous point is that we have to look at the data. So as soon as we can put the mechanism in place that force people to look at their data, um, I think that's when we make the biggest leap forward. So mm. going back to, I always call Iceland my sandbox. Peace <laughs> <because we> are- <laughs>
0: We a I'm country. sure they appreciate
1: it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a country of 350,000 people. So we are, you know, we're like a town in the U.S. But, you no, know, we are a proud nation of 350,000. Um, so, I mean, just what I observed there um, is there has been huge change. So what was thought to be really good five years ago, um, you know, you're no longer a pay equity leader if you have a 3% pay gap or 2% pay gap. So, um, and a lot of the companies are, you know, publicly disclosing their adjusted meaning, their equal pay gap. So apples to apples after accounting for everything as drives pay decisions. Um, You know, so the zero is becoming the new norm in Iceland. And I think, Mm. you know, what do we need to move the needle? I mean, there's a lot of kind of legislative efforts ongoing. Some of them are, you know, You have to publish your, and not just to take up, right? So just the difference in averages between the genders. Um, I mean, that's the first step, but then that is still, you can kind of explain things away and, you know, it doesn't start to address, okay, do you have a fair compensation system in place, but at least it starts to force companies to look at some of their data. So, um, yeah.
0: And, and they have to look at their data with an educated lens. I mean, a book that I'm um, almost through right now is Adam Grant's Think Again. And it's been like, it's been even formative for me at this stage of my life and, and career. It uh, talks about having a scientific mindset and creating a rethinking loop at a appropriate level of frequency. In other words, don't just hold on to your legacy thinking and premises and ways of being. Yeah, you know, we have to shift as new information come in which invites the question, what is that new information? What is the data? Not only the quality of the algorithm, but what is the you know data itself? So this is a segue into data quality, data appropriateness, and algorithmic bias, which I know relates to pay equity from your perspective. Can you speak to that a bit?
1: Yeah, sure. So when we think about, if I give you a tad bit of background, uh, and then i will address your question. So when we think about pay equity and kind of where we have been, where we were and where we are moving towards, it really used to be an auditing exercise. Like once a year, maybe every two years, you would take a look at your data. Somebody would estimate your pay gaps and we would do some fixes, and then you would just set it aside. I think how things are changing now is that it's becoming integrated to all your compensation processes. So one of the things... Because you're talking about new thinking and how we think about pay equity. One of the kind of acknowledgement is that we all have our blind spots, right? We all have our biases and they affect our decision making. So we need to integrate pay equity into all the processes. And then how does that relate to data? Which was actually your question. Um, So one of the things when we think about, okay, what is an equitable pay? A starting pay or somebody's getting promoted. How do we make an equitable decision? So we could, our data, right, of the current organization, but we also know that a lot of the, you know, the compensation past two, three, four decades, right, have been biased. So then how do we bridge between the data that we have and where we want to go? So there's a lot of thinking in, okay, moving forward, how do I want my pay structure to be? How do I make sure it's equitable within my current organization and what is the best path forward? So I think the the rethinking is happening a lot around not only just measure a static point in time, but viewing the pay equity data as an evolving process that needs to be monitored and looked at continuously.
0: And I, this invites the question for me, who does that? You know who's qualified to do that? because uh, that is arguably a trained researcher, a trained data analyst. However, a technologist might have a role, obviously someone who is influencing, if not owning or or stewarding the compensation process. and obviously leaders ultimately are making decisions on how um, you know money is getting allocated. Um so you know, thoughts there. who needs to be deciding, you know what data is collecting and what analysis are being done.
1: Yeah. (laughs) You don't ask yes or no questions, do you?
0: Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's not the first time I've been accused of that. So (laughs) this could could be a topic
1: for a half an hour, Mm -hmm. but you know, yeah, I think, okay. So what needs to be done and who needs to make those decisions? So at the core of it, yes, there needs to be someone who has good insight, not only into data, but the organization. Right. So when if we just take a concrete example, what we typically and often see in organization is that someone was promoted to a manager, then they didn't work out as a manager, but they are an awesome specialist. So they get moved to again to a specialist role, but they keep their management salary. Right. This is a story that happens over and over again. So then, you know, when we think about okay, you know, how would that influence our compensation decisions? Um there needs to be someone kinda with a knowledge or insight to recognize that some of these uh data issues or you know, some of the information is not reflective of our current um, processes. So then we need to think about, okay, you know, then so yes, to your point, we need to have the comp department or whether it's the HR department, depending on the setup, think about those things. Um you know, flag those that should not be influencing um, paid decisions. So, you know, people that are on compensation, not reflective of their status. But then I think one of the key parts when we think about translating pay equity into all of these compensation processes, we need to make it easy for those making the decisions that might not uh, have the training as data scientists or, you know, statisticians or, you know, whatever degree we want to call it we have to make it easy and transparent for them, right? So then how do we take the results of the uh, pay equity analysis, rebrand it or, you know, reframe it so that those who are in the business of hiring people so that they can do and make good decisions at the scale. So one of the organizations that uh, I have worked with has 140,000 employees, right? Their turnover is about... 10%. 10%. That makes 14,000 hires a year. So you can think about, okay, then how do we bring pay equity to scale, right? We have to make sure that it's easy enough for those who make, are making the decisions that they can make good equitable decisions. And, you know, and then it falls on people like me <laughs> to build the right tools to enable that. And I think You know, well, I've told you, I don't know if I told the audience that, you know, I've been in the business of translating analytics into easy to understand concepts for the past 15 years of my life (laughs) as a professor. So I think that has really also influenced my thinking about how do we present, you know, these results and how can we take these results that might have complicated models in the background, but how do we translate them so that they're easy to understand and transparent and can support ongoing decision-making. And I think that's so important oh. um, because there's not going to be a data scientist supporting every single hiring decision.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I see that's a perfect segue because I know you have some slides on algorithmic bias and and uh, did I say bias or bias? <laughs> bias. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> as well as like, the, the fairness of ML because of machine learning because uh, everyone thinks about, I shouldn't say everyone, uh, many just find this to be an esoteric kind of black box, and you know we have been doing math on pay equity and other human resource and people data you know, for certainly the past 20 years, but going back literally 100 years, when we look at, you know, researching uh, organizational behavior and individual behavior within it, uh, but certainly the speed and scale and and scope of data has elevated over the past 10 years specifically. And the application of machine learning, oh, we we need to do this, we need to do AI, but there are risks in that. Do you mind sharing your thoughts and ideas and cautions, uh, you know, about doing that?
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, so what I decided to share with you uh, today is based on so it's based on a Wharton white paper. So we did that last year. We entered the competition. We managed to win it. Uh, so what I um, decided to do was maybe, and that really spoke to how do we need to think about algorithmic bias in the context of people analytics tools. So um, I, I have some slides, but then I hope you interrupt me um, so that this does not turn into some kind of professor's
0: monologue (laughs) (laughs) you
1: know that's what i get paid to uh (laughs) to do so okay so um so when we think about people analytics tools and um machine learning bias i think there has been um a rapid change so i when i teach in my classroom my mba classroom i often bring up this slide because i think You know, we were so excited about machine learning and the potential of machine learning that we weren't really thinking about, oh, you know, maybe there's some AI fairness that we need to think about. But there has been really an explosion in kind of the studies of algorithmic bias um, and fairness. I would say, you know, each year now hundreds of papers are published. So we have learned a lot about why does bias happen? Uh, and how can we avoid it? So, and we can apply that um, to our um, you know data modeling in the people analytics field. So um, so how do we do that? So on the surface, you know the analytical process is straightforward, right? So we start by collecting our data and then we build a model based on this data. The model then provides some predicted outcomes, so maybe the fair pay or you know the managerial potential. And then we incorporate that into uh, our decision making. And so while on the surface, the process may appear objective, it's filled with human judgment and bias that really can enter the process at any point. So when we think about people analytics tools and algorithmic bias, we need to uh, take additional steps in order to um, understand you know, where might we falter? So one thing we need to do uh, is to take the time to understand data biases. This I know is one of your favorite (laughs) topics. So when we think about data bias in in people analytics tools, uh, they can stem from multiple sources, right? So one example is direct bias, right? So for example, we could include uh, bias performance evaluation data in our compensation models, right? Or there can be an indirect bias stemming from the use of proxies. So the example I often take in the context of people analytics is that, oh, maybe we use the grade point average as some kind of measure of uh, intelligence or potential, but we all know that grades are, for example, influenced by how much an individual needs to work alongside school, so if we just blindly incorporate that into our models, we have just biased our models against um, those less uh, affluent, right? So then um, from the data, so let's say we take good care of, you know, the data is high quality data. We question all of our proxies and their validity. So then uh, the next step is then to model, right? Create a model to support our decision making. So then uh, our algorithms interact with our data to produce some kind of analytical tool, right? And um, I think this is where the academic literature has really taught us a lot um, in the last half a decade, uh, last decade. So I, I think I might point out a couple of things. So first, the models will, and what is important to think about is that the models will typically work best for the majority group. So what do I mean by that? So if you have a population, uh, maybe you're thinking about how can I best uh, make my management tier more diverse? Well, it might be that you're faced with that your uh, current population is majority male and white. And then it's important to note that if we just take a machine learning model, we apply it to that data, it will work for the best for the majority group because if you just take an off-the-shelf machine learning algorithm, it's basically trained to work there to maximize the overall accuracy and the majority group will just weigh the most in that. Um, so that's one thing to keep in mind. So your models will always be tailored to your majority group unless you take specific modeling steps in order to ensure that, you know, other groups get, an, let's call it an equal say, uh, in the
0: algorithm, um, Hey, Margaret, may I interrupt you for a sec? Cause I yeah. have a question about that and, yeah. and the process that you're leading. And I want to invite you to go to either slide 11 or 12 uh, on your deck. Cause it, I'm going to jump a couple steps and you can back into it. If you don't mind, it's this is that the data that you collect to your point, you know, the selection thereof can be biased in and of itself. And then the model that we apply, there's, there's a variety of analytical techniques that can be employed and there's a variety of tools. And it takes an arguably an expert at research and analytics to decide which analytical technique and or tools are appropriate. And oftentimes then, you know, organizations don't have that in-house and then they're sold uh, something by a third party and then they, you know, have a, a big blind spot. You know, they don't understand the whole process, what i what I personally call the data to change process. What you have here is data to decisions. So my frankly um, pointed question is this is that do you advocate that an organization, particularly a mid-sized to large organization, have someone who is a subject matter expert in research methods and analytical tools? making these decisions and, and governing this process
1: yeah so i don't know if i'm on the right slide um you have to tell me <laughs>
0: uh, back to back to
1: back to this one
0: yes perfect
1: okay um <laughs> uh, sure so when we think about this whole process i mean if i think the answer is yes if you're going to build your own internal tools right so um uh, i probably got a little bit um lost and sidetracked in the kind of details around the model um, bias and checking. So yes, if you are planning to build your own internal machine learning tools, you need someone who is aware of how they can be biased, what are the state of the art modeling techniques? You know, how can you um, think about, you know, building the right tools? But then I would say, you know, we have now good tools that can help us make sure we get things right. So if I get to back up, one of those is a biased dashboard. So let's say we are building a tool to promote uh, our employees to the management level, thinking, in, if you want, you know, a machine learning model to identify employees that have potential, one way we can monitor then the tool is not only based on statistical performance, but actually some fairness metrics, right? Are we promoting equal proportion of um, employees from each demographic group that we are monitoring, for example? Um, So here I just have some, uh, I have broken it down by by gender, but you can think about any kind of um, monitoring. So there are these simple, Tools that can do two things for you. They can monitor okay, how good is the model for the different groups, but more importantly, what is the impact of the tools? So, while you know statistical measures might be important, at the end of the day, what matters is you know who gets the opportunity, right? And then simply monitoring that in real time um, can bring that about. And then if I um, forward to Um, Another thing that we can do is that if we are adopting an external tool, we can have these checklists and make sure that we ask the hard questions, right? So if we are adopting an AI tool into our hiring uh, or into where there is pay equity or any kind of internal decision-making that affects our employees, we should be asking the vendors the hard questions, right? So how does the tool monitor algorithmic bias? You know, how will it react to my data? Um, How do we monitor it in real time? You know, how will we, you know, is there automatic monitoring um, for my company, right? So all of this, I think, will help us. So depending on if we are building internal tools with our um, data scientist on board. Yes, you know, we have tools that can help that and make sure that our tools are good. And then, if you're adopting something external, it's about knowing which, what are the right questions to ask to make sure that we adopt something where these issues have been thought through and that enable us to monitor them in real time so that there, if there is an issue, we discover it in real time as opposed to a year down the road. Where all of these different decisions have been made.
0: Well, I mean, there's so much to talk about, and I love the way you think about it. Obviously, this is your profession; you're outstanding at it. And as we start to wrap here, I, I am—we're mean, going to have to have you back, number one, because I have—I have a <laughs> have hundred questions, and we address some of these in in the podcast. Sure. Uh, but to be fair, you know, there are a lot of intricacies to this, um, and where, where I want to land is this: is that many companies are trying to do the heavy lift of create a capability inside the organization and sometimes that's appropriate other times it is appropriate to partner with a third party that has an expertise in a specific domain as well as the research methods as well as the tools and that understands that you know there are risks and opportunities in this process and they're effectively you know taking that so from an organizational perspective they can outsource a lot of this work so You have co-founded Pay Analytics as well. Can you speak a little bit about what you do and the value of working with a third party such as Pay Analytics?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about Pay Analytics. Um, So, yeah, so what we, I mean, I think it ties into all of this, right? Because when we think about um, pay equity, it's really about um, thinking about how do we measure pay equity, how do we, you know, address any uh, pay equity issues in a fair manner, right? And then even just when we think about, okay, a fair manner, we all know that fairness is not a statistical property, so then we need to define what is uh, fairness. And then just as we've been talking about, you know, how do we make sure that moving forward, we make good decisions? that are balanced and unbiased and fair, because I think what we're increasingly seeing um, across pay equity studies, you know, done here in the U.S. and over in Europe is that um, at the end of the day, if organizations can signal to their employees that their compensation decisions are fair, um, that is a really um, strong incentive and it has been shown to increase um, retention of employees because they feel that they are being treated fairly. So to have that process in place, um, I think is important. So what we have done, because we're talking a lot about, oh, these are complicated tools, these are complicated um, topics. You know, how do we make sure that we do this uh, in the right manner? So what we have really tried to do is to tra- take all the math, right? And do that right, obviously, but then translate that into a tool that is super transparent, right? Because when you think about pay equity, it's almost, you think about transparency at the same time. So, you know, you know, the new European uh, Pay Equity Act is actually called the uh, Transparency Act. So mm. we, what we need. I think also anytime, and more generally than just pay analytics, any people analytics tool, I think one of the core principles when we create these tools has to be transparency. Because these decisions that we are supporting, I mean, they have impact on employees. So we have to be able to communicate, why are we making that suggestion? Why is that a good suggestion? Uh, and how does that get us closer to an equitable workplace? So, I think that's really at the core of um, what we've been trying to do uh, at Pay Analytics.
0: Well, Margaret, thank you for doing what you do. It's really important work and you're outstanding at it. I'm, Like I said, i a been a fast fan of not only your articles and your thought leadership, but the way you think. Um, it's just beautiful to hear. So yes, I would love to have you back and best wishes uh, with your uh, venture with Pay analytics and your teaching there at University of Maryland. So thank you. Appreciate yeah, it.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And I look forward to my return. <laughs>
0: All right. be well. All right. Take care.
1: Okay. Bye.
0: Bye.